It's something that's new for the audience and to be perfectly frank and honest, new for me. I've never taught this class, this particular kind of a class, the type of class, and it's necessary to understand a number of things before we get underway here. What we're going to be doing is the, the class is entitled Advice, which is, is the English translation, the title of the English translation of one of, one of the works of Rav Nachman of Breslov. Rav Nachman of Breslov was a great Hasidic master in the, uh, in the lineage of the Baal Shem Tov himself, who was the father of Hasidus, and one of his greatest disciples, Reb Nassen, as he's referred to, or Nathan, if you're reading it in English, really went through the major work of Reb Nachman, as he's referred to, uh, called the Likute Maran, and culled from the hundreds of pages of the Likute Maran basic practical advice on many, many different issues in daily life, in terms of how to deal with many different things, personality traits, character things, how to react to different things, how to address many different intellectual, psychological, emotional needs, etc., etc. And basically what he did is he went through the Likuti Maran and he put them into different sections. And the way he has his book, in English you can't appreciate it as much, but the way the book is really set up is Alphabetically, he has topics, but the alphabet is the Jewish alphabet. And the book starts with all of the areas in Aleph and goes straight through the Jewish alphabet with areas that go through the Tuf. So he'll start with things like eating and the significance of eating to all other human behaviors, Achila, okay? And he'll end off with topics that have to do with Torah, which is spelled with the Tuf. So, Basically, he has three, four pages, and sometimes he has five, six pages on subjects, okay? If I could give you an idea of the breadth of this book, okay, I'll just read to you for a moment some of the areas that he covers here. We've selected uh, seven or eight of them for this particular semester. Well, let me just give you an idea. Truth and faith, eating, hospitality, Children, trust, modesty, understanding, speech, meditation, encouragement, memory, marriage, journeying and traveling, anger, honor, mockery, money, livelihood, things of that nature. Small little topics of life. In any case, what we're going to find here in the teachings of Rav Nachman, now this is available in Hebrew, and I really work from Hebrew text. However, I would suggest to anybody that uh, enjoys the class, okay, to, to try to get a hold of this book, which is a very good, I mean, all translations have problems, but uh, a relatively good translation of the book that we're going to be learning, okay, advice. And uh, every, at the end of every class, I'll announce which subject we're going to be doing next week so you can read up on it and, and be, to a certain degree, uh, prepared for, for what we're going to discuss in the next class. Now, this particular study is unique because much of the advice that is, is translated here 
is very much based in Hasidic philosophy. Okay? Now, let me just try to give for a, a few brief moments, which it's very difficult to do justice to any philosophy in. But let me just try for a few moments to, to give an idea of what we're dealing with. Okay? There were, there were various paths that or processes that Jews selected that would help them and that would aid them to be able to address their responsibilities within Judaism and really become dedicated and devoted to reaching the ultimate destination of Judaism. <coughs> that ultimate destination of Judaism is that man should be able to forge a relationship, an intimate relationship with God. And within Jewish history and within the personalities of people, people found various ways in which they were able to call forth from themselves their strengths and potentials and be able to match them up with the calling of Judaism and really be able to relate to Judaism and to God in a personal way. There were many different ways in which this was done. There were those that would be able to find spiritual ecstasy in the relationship with God through plummeting the depths of a complicated Torah discourse. There were those that were able to reach spiritual heights and a deep sense of God through moral and ethical disciplines, the Balei Musar as they're referred to. And yet another category was the Derech HaChasidus, the way of the Chassid. And there are major differences, which is not the goal of this class tonight to explain the differences between the, the way of Chasidus and any other legitimate path within Judaism, but certainly each path had certain unique qualities to it unique qualities to it. And being that we're learning the teachings of Rav Nachman, it would be logical to point to a few of them. And as we go on through the different classes okay, on this subject, it's, some things are going to become very, very clear. They're going to emerge very clearly in terms of the entire philosophy of Hasidus. If I would have to say the philosophy of Hasidus very briefly... And as precisely as I could, I would say the following. In our own history, we had great Kabbalists. The authors, the ones that revealed, didn't make up, but revealed the mystical literature, the hidden truths that lie behind the Torah, God, the purpose of creation, the essence of man, etc., etc., we're all, we've all heard the term of Kabbalah or Jewish mysticism and many of us possibly even dabbled in it but not in a terribly integrated way as it applies to life. In other words, Kabbalah really can get you out there in space uh, with all kinds of concepts that really require a tremendous amount of effort to figure out what on earth they have to do with daily living. However, what Hasidus was able to do was Hasidus was able to take the secrets of Kabbalah 
and was able to translate it into a derech of chasi, uh, into a derech, into an integrated way that it expressed itself and helped the Jew reach God by this deeper understanding of himself and a deeper understanding of God. Now, let me give you an example of what I'm talking about so it's not so abstract. For instance, for example, Chassidus, Kabbalah, excuse me, Kabbalah teaches us about ten sefirot, about different emanations of God. Emanations of God are energies which define themselves to us as certain characteristics of God, but they are energies that come into this world and affect and influence things differently. They can be an energy of love, they can be an energy of anger, they can be an energy of justice, there can be an energy of reward. There are different energies, there are different emanations that come forth from God and they are designated for the world as God judges them to be appropriate to, in response to man and in response to the world within which man lives. And these are very lofty kinds of concepts, the, the concept of Sifirot. Now, what Chasidus did Okay, and the Baal Shem Tov was, was classic in this, is that the Baal Shem Tov says the following, okay, and even some of the Kabbalists said it, but Hasidus integrated it into, into life, that all of the different emanations that we try in Kabbalah to define as being things that come from God, Hasidus teaches us that they are also the characteristics deep down of man himself because man is created in the image of God. And were man to become knowledgeable of the emanations and how those emanations define themselves within man himself, so then man would be in contact with the most noble part of his being. And by becoming in contact with the most noble part of his own being, he could truly feel himself compatible with his partner God and develop a keen and, and deep relationship with God, for they would both be meeting on a level of divinity. So, Chasidus pointed, while, for instance, Musser, the, the, the moralists and the ethicists, pointed to all of the different confusions of motivations and all of the different aspects of negativity that riddle the motivations and the strivings of man, Chasidus pointed to another factor of man, the fact that he's created in the image of God, and in much the same way that we define the characteristics of God, man in a microcosm really represents many of those characteristics. Now, this was extremely relevant because then the focus becomes of how to engage and how to arouse and how to bring to the surface those, those godly characteristics, that divinity within man. And the belief of Chassidus was that if man could bring to the surface those emanations of God that were embedded into his own very image of God, then man would be able to ascend to the spiritual levels where he would be able to be a fulfilled human being within the context of his Judaism and his relationship with God. So we're going to find, as we now begin the, the book Advice, we're going to find that there's going to be a lot of advice rendered by Rib Nachman 
that on one level seems to be extremely practical. It's just that it works and that it's logical that it should work. And there is that, you know, that practical aspect to it. And you could even think to yourself sometimes, like, what's the big deal? Any secular author could have written the same kind of advice. However, intermingled in what seems to be simple practical advice is a contact through those different pieces of advice to discovering the image of God that's in the human being. And many of the techniques and many of the things that, that Rav Nachman gives us as advice really is, comes and flows from the fact that man is in pursuit of finding divinity. And the divinity is there and it's accessible and that there are many different things that come up that conceal it and hide it. And therefore, working with the premise that the divinity is there, let's now map out the techniques and the processes of being able to uncover it and not letting it remain a recessive trait of the Jew. Now, where I'm going to start from this evening, okay, I've, I, we're not going straight in the book. I pointed out that the book is written, alf, you know, topically, alphabetically which doesn't mean that in terms of spiritual growth that's the way to go. <coughs> what I'm going to do is I'm going to, uh, I'd like to start, I'd like to start with, with something that I think uh, as an introduction is something that we can all relate to and find a tremendous amount of inspiration in and then every week we'll get deeper and deeper into the different pieces of advice. What I'd like to discuss this evening is referred to as azus. That's the Hebrew word. It comes from the root word az, which means to be bold. Right? To be bold. And you can find it when you do get your books, okay? You could, when you, you do purchase your books, which are available most probably in any Hebrew bookstore, it's under boldness on page 193. Now, the first thing that Rav Nachman teaches us about boldness is <coughs> that boldness is potentially a very destructive trait. This is the first thing that Rav Nachman teaches us. Because boldness, by definition, is a decision that the human being makes that he is going to be, if not physically forceful, but certainly emotionally and psychologically forceful about something. Now, by definition, being forceful about something really means that the person, to a certain degree, is throwing up a level of resistance to something. Whenever we throw up a level of resistance to something, we have to be cautious that maybe we are in an unnatural and in an artificial way not allowing certain things to come in that should otherwise come into our beings. So, the Talmud has an, uh, uh, an adage which is basically, az panim legehenim, which means translated into English, the person who, is, who has boldness as, as a, a central characteristic of his personality will most probably land up in hell. This is the way the Gemara says it. It doesn't pull any, pull any punches. Azpanim legehenim. The azpanim, the person who functions out of this forcefulness, is usually will find himself in, in Gehenim. Now, it's very interesting 
It's very interesting that that early on in Jewish history, God gave Abraham a choice that when the Jew would fall away from an appropriate relationship with God, right? What would he like? What would he see appropriate for God to to meet out to the Jew to bring him back in connection with God? And Abraham had two choices. One choice that Abraham was leave them leave him alone and straighten him out in the spiritual rehab center called hell after the person's death. Or the other choice was what our history is today. Our exiles, our oppressions, and so on and so forth. And interestingly enough, Abraham chose that rather that the Jew should live, so to speak, on the top of the mountain, free of all worry and pain in this world, and then have to pay for it later on, Okay, in the world to come, Abraham said, if the choice is mine, I would select that the Jews should have to go through difficult circumstances, nationally and individually in this world, rather than to have to live a false life here, never get back to the truth here, and then be cleaned up and set straight in the world to come. And therefore, Abraham made the choice of Shibud Malchias, the yoke of being in strange places and under foreign rule. However, interestingly enough, though this was a choice that Abraham made for almost any kind of vice and transgression of the Jew, God says, but there's one thing that that does stay for the spiritual rehab center of the world to come. And that's the Azpanim. And that's the person whose central characteristic of existence is this kind of forceful boldness. Now, being that that's true, being that that's true, one has to be very, very careful, Reb Nachman says, in, in defining what is considered negative boldness and what is considered positive boldness. Because you see, any characteristic, and this is a foundation of Hasidus, any characteristic that the human being possesses, it is our belief that it has its origins in, in, in being a creation of God that was implanted in man for a positive purpose. Whatever the characteristic might be, it really has its origins in a place of holiness. However, the whole challenge is where do you channel this this characteristic and how does this characteristic express itself and therefore Reb Nachman says though the Talmud tells us the person with the bold face which means the bold characteristic and forcefulness is in more cases than not going to land up in a place of severe spiritual rehab after this world (coughs) however there is a boldness which is positive and this is referred to as Azus de Kedusha, a boldness that fights for the sake of holiness. In other words, boldness sometimes throws up walls in which man doesn't hear, and then the boldness spills over from a positive characteristic to smelling from arrogance 
and smelling from resistance to being able to receive from another person wisdom, insight, etc., etc. And that's the person that will ultimately land up in a rough place when he leaves this world. However, there is a boldness that is positive. The boldness that moves a person closer and closer to the realm of holiness and the boldness is utilized to overcome the barriers that stand in a person's way. Now, let's give some examples. Let's give some examples. One of the favorite, favorite examples in Hasidus, okay, which is a mirror of Hasidic philosophy, is the centrality of the Rebbe, the centrality of the teacher and the mentor and the guide of a Hasid's life. And it's not my intention this evening, we'll get to it eventually because it's unavoidable in Reb Nachman, we will eventually get to understanding the concept in its depth and try to get rid of some of the myths that are attached to it. But for the sake of this evening, let's, let's just say that Hasidus says in a major way that the human being cannot grow to his fullest spiritual potential without a teacher, without a mentor. Whatever he does on his own and whatever he learns and whatever he reads, etc., etc., there are certain basic actualizations of his neshama, of his soul, that requires the involvement of a teacher in his life. And when I say teacher, I'm not talking about a teacher that just passes on information. I'm talking about a teacher who is bound up spiritually with the soul of this person and knows how to arouse the potentials of this soul and bring this person closer to realizing his spiritual potentials. This is a concept from Hasidus where it comes from. Everything has to come from Tyra. We didn't make up our own things as we went along. It's not the subject for this evening. However, this is a central concept. <coughs> However, there's a tremendous difficulty in going to a human being and in a, in, a, in a symbolic sense prostrating oneself in front of another flesh and blood and putting many of the major decisions of life under the wisdom and judgment of another person who, yes, looks a little bit saintly and might even have a halo over his head, but nevertheless is flesh and blood and is deciding the destiny, or at least defining for me where my destiny lies. This is a very big challenge. It's a challenge of trust. It's a challenge in terms of my own personality, being able to listen to another person. It's a challenge of being able to put aside some of my own desires and some of my own thinking and needs on things and to be able to follow something even if it's not totally in sync with me intellectually, emotionally or otherwise. It's a very, very big challenge. And sometimes, in order to be able to create a comfortable facade for not, be, for not going and not relying and not paying attention to a teacher or even finding that teacher in your life, is to say something like this. The particular teacher that I would like to have in my life is so great and so busy and so saintly and etc., etc. Who am I to have the chutzpah? 
Who am I to have the audacity to waste his time with my petty things? They're important to me, okay? But after everything is said and done, he's in a different world. And why should I expose him to my lower world, etc., etc.? Now, in the ethics of our fathers, it says a rule, which is a very logical rule. The person that tells himself that it's a virtue to feel shame and embarrassment in front of a great person and therefore to hold yourself back from using the poor person as a resource of your own growth, okay, is wrong. And therefore, Rib Nachman teaches us that this is one of the places where boldness is a very important trait. Yes, I'm not going to say to myself that he's nothing. No, he is a great person. He is a saintly person. He is a holy person. He is a very religiously committed and, and person with trem- deep convictions. However, I am going to jump over the normal feelings of inadequacy and inappropriateness to confront this person, and I'm going to be bold because I know that my own spiritual growth to a certain degree is contingent upon having this resource in my life. So with the recognition of the vast difference spiritually of the teacher from the student, I say to myself, but I have to be bold about this, and I'm going to push myself in front of his presence and not gonna, I'm not going to allow myself to buy into the argument that there's such a vast difference between him and I that I can't approach him. So this requires a boldness. It's recognizing the difference and nonetheless saying, but this is something that I need to have in order to grow and therefore I'm going to push myself beyond that barrier which says, who are you to talk to him? And I'm going to be bold about it in order to access him as a resource in my life. Now, (coughs) Rav Nachman points out Rav Nachman points out in a very interesting way that the way that God created the world, the way that God created the world is that man has to demonstrate a certain amount of boldness in order to be worth the spiritual gifts that come after exhibiting the boldness. You see... If a person says, yes, this person is a spiritual resource, and parenthetically, I'm using the teacher only as an example because it's the example that Rev. Nachman says. But you can use any other example. Anything that would be a spiritual resource or a spiritually positive thing to do, but I feel very inadequate and inappropriate to approach it. It's not only in terms of a human being. I'm just using that as an example. Rev. Nachman says... Let me give you a, a, an example from the secular world, okay? That's somewhat of an example to this concept. If a person wants a raise but never asks for it, he's not worth it. Right? This is something which is, 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 uh, is common philosophy in the outside world, okay? Now, there, it's similar to that concept 
The same thing is true in terms of spiritual pursuit. If a person values a certain spiritual level or wants to get to a spiritual destination but is not willing to put forth and to exact from himself the boldness of getting there, he's not worth it. He's not worth that, that, that spiritual destination. In order for a person to be worth the spiritual destination that he's seeking out, he has to have the boldness of being, being able to overcome the barrier that stands in his way. And very often what makes me meritorious and worthy of getting to the spiritual, uh, spiritual destination is the very exhibition of bringing out and manifesting this boldness. Now, there are many examples biblically. There are many examples biblically. And there's a story that I might have told you here as well of how people reached certain spiritual levels only because of the chutzpah that they had. Only because of the chutzpah that they had to get to where they had to go. Basically what I'm saying is that chutzpah that is necessary in order to be able to reach a spiritual destination is all right. Now, let's be very careful about what I just said now so that it shouldn't be misinterpreted. Boldness doesn't give me a right to become indecent in my speech or my actions with the philosophy of the ends justify the means. That's not what I'm saying. Okay? Quite to the contrary. The boldness towards a spiritual destination has a very great trapping in it. The person can say to himself, if I'm allowed, if I have an allowance and a license to be bold, to reach a spiritual destination, so I can let it all hang out and be real bold and not care about what I say and how I hurt a person and how chutzpahdik I am to get to where I'm supposed to go. No, that's not what Rav Nachman is saying. What Rav Nachman is saying is that those barriers that I put up within myself, okay, not to reach a spiritual destination, I have to be forceful in not letting them stand in my way. But it doesn't mean that the force doesn't require dignity and integrity. It requires dignity and integrity and thoughtfulness, but nevertheless, a boldness, a forcefulness to get to, to where you have to get. This is a very common mistake that people make. No, 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 since it's a good goal, I will be bold and I'll get there, and if I have to be a bull in a china shop or become some kind of machine that mows down everything that's in my path, but it's all all right because in, I'm going to get to that end. Wrong. Absolutely wrong. Right? Absolutely wrong. The way to hell was, was paved with good intentions. That's not what Rav Nachman is talking about. Rav Nachman is talking about the characteristic of, 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 a, set, of a degree of inner strength that does not compromise myself or any other person that might be the barrier to my being able to get to where I have to go. Now, let me give some examples so that we should be able to relate to this. Let me give some examples of this. <coughs> One of the examples, okay, I'll give a biblical example and then I'll give a midrashic example. I'll give a, a biblical one and a, a midrashic one. And both of them portray something which is very interesting. 
The, the, a, a biblical example, okay, a biblical example would be like this. Lavan, who is a biblical figure, had two daughters. The older daughter was Leah, the younger daughter was Rachel. Yitzchak, who was a relative through Rivka to Lavan, had two sons. The older one was Esav, the younger one was Yaakov. Now, the talk in town was that these two families would get together and would marry. And logically, the older of Yitzhak's two children would marry the older of, of the two daughters of Lavan. So it would mean that Leah would marry Esav, and the younger to the younger would mean that Rachel would be wed to Yaakov. Now, the trouble was like this. In the family of Yitzchak, Yaakov and Esav were dramatically different. As children, they were dramatically different. Yaakov was following in a, a very righteous path, and Esav was following a very wicked and rebellious path in life. However, the two daughters of Lavan were both righteous women. So the fact that Rachel was destined in the way that people thought to marry, to marry Yaakov was fine. But the fact that Leah, who was also a righteous woman, was destined to marry Esav was far from good. Now, our commentaries say that it wasn't only the talk of town that the older was to marry the older and the younger was to marry the younger, but that in fact in heaven it was decided that the, the, that the partner for Leah was Esav and the partner for Rachel was Yaakov. However, Leah could not accept the fact that she would fall in the lot of Esav. And we are taught that Leah even knowing on a spiritual level that from before birth it was Esav that was destined to be her partner in life, refused to accept this and boldly stood before God and insisted that Esav was not the person that she was going to marry. And we are taught that Leah took this so seriously that she actually harmed her eyesight and the appearance of her eyes in the tears that she shed relentlessly to God not to fall in the lot of Esav. We are taught that it's the boldness of Leah that actually pulled her out of falling into the lot of Esav and becoming worthy of falling into the lot of Yaakov. In other words, not only is boldness a normal process necessary to reach many of the spiritual treasures of Judaism, but very often through boldness I can actually alter and heighten my lot of spirituality if I'm bold enough. So the fact that on all, under no, all normal circumstances I'm designated, so to speak, to a certain level or category of spirituality in front of boldness, there are no laws. Boldness can break all mechitzot, all barriers, and may help a person enter even into that which, to begin with, was an inaccessible area spiritually to a person. This is a very 
This is a very interesting concept, and I'd like to give another example of it from our Madrashic literature. Now, the example that I'm going to give poses a certain problem that people are often disturbed by, and they get so disturbed with the problem that it poses that they forget that the point of the example. So I beg you not to get involved in the, the side element here, which is a little bit problematic, and just to focus on the story as an example unto itself. The Talmud tells us a story <coughs> of a couple in Talmudic times that were married for ten years and lived in Israel for those ten years and were childless. And they went and they asked the question if they were required to dissolve the marriage so that the man would then be able to, to be free to marry somebody else and bear children from somebody else. Obviously, it was, it was, what was borne out was that there was a problem and that the problem was a problem that she couldn't bear children. And so they went and they asked the question. And the decision that was rendered, and I don't want anybody to take this literally, this is the sticky point, but the decision that was rendered is that you obviously have come with a commitment to do that which Judaism asks of you, and the answer to the, the question that you're asking is yes. You are required under the circumstances that have been defined in this particular case, to dissolve the marriage and to go marry somebody else. But being that you're prepared to do something that is so, so difficult because you believe it's the right thing to do, the Talmudic sage encouraged them not to make the divorce proceedings a secret, but actually that people should know about it so that other people should learn the lesson of the supremacy of God's expectation of man, even if it comes at the pain of a meaningful relationship. In any case, so they made a party. Could you imagine getting an invitation to a divorce? So they made a party. They made a party, and they invited all their friends to this divorce, or this divorce proceedings, and before the divorce they had this ten-course dinner. And... At the dinner, the husband said to his wife, before we proceed with this divorce, I allow you to make one request of me, whatever you want. And I promise you that I will fulfill that request. So she needed time to think about it. And, and in the midst of it all, he was eating and drinking and partying, etc., etc., and he became drunk. And he fell asleep from all the wine that he drank at the party. To wake up in his father-in-law's house with his, st and his wife standing over his bed waiting for him to wake up. He woke up with a start. He realized that he's in his father-in-law's house and his wife is standing over him. And he can't exactly remember what happened. But he knew that the, the intention of the whole thing was a divorce. And here he's in his father-in-law's house with his wife standing over him. Like, what's happening? So she said, well, it's very simple. Before you got drunk, you made a promise to me. And the promise that you made to me was that anything that I wanted, you would fulfill. So I said, you know, I thought hard and long about it, and I came up with what I want. 
I don't want anything else in this world except you. This is what she said to him. And now he was in a dilemma. On the one hand, Torah required that there should be a divorce in this particular circumstance. On the other hand, he made a promise, which is also a Torah law, that you must keep your promises. So now he's in a real pickle. Damned if you do, damned if you don't. It's one of those real difficult situations. So they went back to the Talmudic sage that they asked the original question from and asked him for advice. And the Talmudic sage gave them a blessing. And nine months later, they had a child. Now, what's the point of this story that the Medrash tells us? What's the point of this? The point of this is as follows. It's a lesson in the accomplishment of boldness. It could very well be that this this person wasn't, so to speak, meant to bring a child into this world in this marriage. However, since she came to a point in her life where she said, I don't care, this is the only thing that I want, which is a boldness, a forcefulness, a tinge of chutzpah, right? So that opened her up that the Talmudic sage would be able to bless her and now, through that demonstration and manifestation of boldness, the blessing of the sage would be able to rest upon her and she would be able to bear a child. The point of the story is to demonstrate that boldness bears fruit because boldness... Excuse me? Yeah, well, I'm trying to be a little bit poetic. Right? You spoiled it. Right? Boldness bears fruit. It bears fruit because it's an ultimate statement. Now, we can understand this on many levels. Okay, You could understand it on the level of, yeah, sure, if you hustle enough, you'll make it. But there's really a much deeper spiritual thing that's going on over here. When a person demonstrates boldness, what he's really doing is he's contributing of his energies to the realm of holiness. He's saying, this is where I want to be and I don't want to be anywhere else and this is where I want to get to. What he's doing, he's taking energies that are inside of him and he's funneling them into that realm. When you take deep, deep energies from within yourself and you funnel them into those realms, you become deserving to benefit from those realms. That's one of the laws of how a person comes into the powers of holiness into the powers of that particular realm. Now, because of this, because of this, Rabbi Nachman teaches us that boldness is something that should permeate much of our spiritual pursuits. If it's learning and not giving up until you crack the deepest meaning of the piece that you're working on, saying to yourself, I don't care what I am or what I'm not, I'm not leaving this until I understand it. Okay? It, it's, it's the demonstration of boldness that I don't care how great that person is, but I'm not going to let him slip through my fingers and I am not going to let him go until I get from him what I need to get from him. And it's even a, a thing that a person does when he prays to God. 
It's even something that a person does when he prays to God. And again, one has to be very careful when one prays to God with boldness that one doesn't speak in a way of disrespect. But let me give you an example of a woman that spoke with boldness before God. Hannah stands before God. Hannah was a very modest woman. She was a very saintly woman, a very great woman. She eventually bore and brought into this world a great prophet, Samuel, who in his generation was as great as Moses and Aaron in their generation. Let's see how she prayed to God to bring a child into the world. She stood before God and she pointed to her breasts and said to God, What did you give this to me for? if I will never be able to, to, to breastfeed a child. That's how she prayed to God. She turns to God and she says, there are realms above and there are realms below. The realms above live forever, but do not procreate. But they can always sing before you in the eternity of their lives. The realms below live and die, but they leave an eternal song in the children that they raise and leave after them. God, it's not fair. Do I belong to the realms above? Let me live eternally. Do I belong to the realms below? Give me a child. The Gemara says that when Hannah prayed in the fashions which I just just shared with you, there were angels in heaven that said to God, Hannah is talking out of order. She's lost her place. She's forgotten who she's talking to. And God said, leave her alone. Because what she's demonstrating is Azus the Kedush. <coughs> Rav Nachman continues, this is the easy stuff. I mean, not easy to do, but easy to understand. Rav Nachman continues with a very, very beautiful piece of another example of boldness which I'd like to share with you. Boldness in Torah, boldness in prayer, boldness in seeking out a teacher. These are all very understandable things. However, Rav Nachman gives us another example of boldness that opens up for us a tremendous amount of the beauty of Judaism and the Jews' deepest pursuit of God. And it's not possible for me to be able to, tr- to share this with you without saying the words and translating them because they are absolutely beautiful. So I'll say them and translate them word for word, okay, in my own translation, okay, and then I'll embellish it a little bit to be able to bring out the flavor of what Rav Nachman is hinting to. And he says like this, he says, V'chein Adam, not only does a person have to demonstrate boldness vis-a-vis getting a teacher, talking to God, etc., etc., where the boldness is, where the boldness is directed outwardly, in other words, to God, to the teacher, so on and so forth, there is also a pursuit of boldness that's inwardly directed, where a person expresses a boldness against himself in order to break something that stands up against himself. 
In other words, boldness is not so, only to procure resources from the outside, but it's also to be able to procure internal resources that are within man himself. Dahainu, what am I talking about, Reb Nachman says? Azus haguf. You know, there is a boldness that we all have that has nothing to do with holiness. It's called the boldness of body. What's the boldness of body? This is a phenomenal concept. What's the boldness of body? So he explains. The body is az v'chazak. It is very bold and strong. Betavos. And it wants certain things, certain needs fulfilled. The ein lo busha me Hashem yisparach. And when a person gets into wanting those desires to be fulfilled, the human being is very, very bold and lacks all shame, even if he's convinced that God is watching what he's doing. So the fact that the human being possesses a boldness of body, Rav Nachman says, we're all familiar with it. We feel a taste. We are hungry for a physical, biological need. Right? And when we say that we must have it, even if there's another part of me that feels it's inappropriate, and even if I sense a presence of right and wrong and morality and the presence of God and so on and so forth, I say, I don't care. I have to have dissatisfied. And therefore, I boldly go ahead and do it. Now, years ago, people did this boldness between themselves. Quietly. Today, the boldness comes out even more bold than it used to be. I will be so bold as to create a philosophy around it that will rationalize it. But it's also a boldness. No, 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 no more closets. Everything is out in the open. It's a boldness. The boldness of body in its supremest form. But Rav Nachman says like this, and listen carefully to this, because this is tremendously beautiful. He says, But al yidei azus haguf, but I want you to know one thing, this boldness of body that I've just described. What happens because of this boldness of body? The soul that is with, within man cannot lean on the body and share its life. The neshama can't share its life with the body because the boldness pushes it away. It's a phenomenal concept. The soul within man wants and is in search of the partner of the body of the person to be able to share its yearnings with. It wants to give off on a metaphysical level its yearnings to the body. But when the body comes to a level of, of personal self-centered pursuit with boldness, the neshama is totally, totally rejected and pushed away. And the, and the Reb Nachman says like this, Ki shall kal adam Unbelievable. The soul of the human being always, listen to this, always perceives great and holy things. You and me. We all, our souls, 
on a constant basis are perceiving holy things. But we don't know anything about what our souls are perceiving. Because the soul can't give it off in a way that we should be able to feel the spiritual perceptions that are taking place at every moment inside of us. Why can't we feel those spiritual perceptions? Because the boldness of the body doesn't allow the beauty of those perceptions to be felt by us. You know, a major, a major thing that always comes up in people's spiritual growth is if Judaism is everything that it says it is, how come when I become spiritually involved, I don't feel anything? How come I'm not feeling things? Here we're getting a little bit of an answer to it. Rev. Nachman says that there is constant perception and connection to the loftiest and to the most beautiful things that is constantly taking place within man. However, man is locked away of perceiving the perceptions that his soul is constantly seeing because when the body says, I want somebody to talk to, I want somebody to share my life with, it comes up against this arrogant and bold body that has no regard whatsoever, no regard whatsoever for spirituality. It's interesting that Rav Nachman says that the thing that makes a person most incapable of feeling the spiritual perceptions of the soul is not that he's physical, but that there's a boldness attached to the physicalness that feels no shame of something that's contradictory to God. That's what makes them. The fact that we're physical, that's not the barrier to being able to feel spiritual. There's nothing... God made us physical and He meant that the physical should be able to pick up the perceptions of the soul. That's not the problem. The problem is when the body becomes such an independent being that it takes on a boldness that says, I don't care, God, that you created me with spiritual charge, mission, and function. I'm going to do what I want to do. It's that boldness that locks away the soul that yearns for a partner in life from having that partner. Now, listen to what Rav Nachman says. The human being should have compassion for his flesh. Not for his soul, for his flesh. He should try to break some of that boldness of body. So that the soul that's inside of him should not be a stranger to his body and should be able to engage the body in a partnership. Have a little Rachmanis on your guf, on your body, that it should be able to share its life with the soul. Because the soul is anxious and desperate to show the glimpses of the beauty that it perceives. It wants to show it. It wants to share it with the body. So if the body has such boldness that it says to God, I don't care and I'm not embarrassed of you, the only way to break that boldness is with an equal and opposite boldness right, to fight it, 
and not to allow it to rob the partnership that the, that the soul, soul is desiring. The Aziz de Kedusha, I, I must finish this. I know it's getting late and I'm sure you want to ask questions, but I must finish this. The Aziz de Kedusha, he kailas de Kedusha. He says, and where does the boldness, listen to this, where does the boldness of holiness express itself in the fight against the boldness of body? Where does it express itself? He says it expresses itself in every sigh, in every calling, in every yearning, in every, in every tone, in every scream, in, in everything that a person does, in every song that he sings, in his yearning to reach the realm of holiness. Now, Rav Nachman continues. When you'll get the book in English, you'll get the rest of the beauty. Rav Nachman continues and he says, how do you get to boldness? How do you get to boldness? Okay, now we've learned a little bit some of the virtues of what boldness is about. How do you get to boldness, Rav Nachman says. Now, some of the techniques that people can use for boldness, okay, can be very, very detrimental. Let me give you an example. You can say to yourself, I need to be bold. And therefore, in order to be bold and to be able to rise up against all of the challenges that are up against me, okay, what I'm going to have to tell myself is that all of the people that are standing in my way are garbage. Okay? They're wrong, they're no good, they're trash, they're, they're, they're murderers, etc., etc. That's a way of doing it. Okay? In other words, this person is trying to be able to create inner strength within himself in order to be able to overcome things that are standing in his way. So one of the ways to do it is, how do you get inner strength to overcome something? You try to devaluate the thing that's in front of you to the point that you now feel that you have the strength in order to overcome it. Wrong. Absolutely wrong. That is a boldness that when you will demonstrate it, will compromise dignity and your integrity. Because it's coming from a negative place. It's coming through the devaluation of things. That's not what boldness is. Boldness has to come from maximizing one's own inner strength, one's own inner potential. Not from, not from undressing the other person but from bringing out the full strength that's inside of you. Okay? Now, you know, there's, there's a saying, just to lighten up here for a minute, there's a saying amongst the people that worked on, on, on ethical de- moral and ethical development, so people worked on like trying to be very humble people. So there was once a joke said about this, that, you know, in everything there are trappings, and even when a person works on humbleness, he can fall into a trap. What trap can you fall into when you're pursuing humbleness? It's said in Yiddish. It's very nice in Yiddish, and I'll translate it into English. Ich bin take garnished. I'm really nothing. Abadubist gar garnished. But you're even less than nothing. There are always traps in, in spiritual pursuits. Okay? And sometimes a person can hold on to exactly the thing that he needs to overcome. Okay? 
and, and really think that he's pursuing a spiritual path. So boldness is not the undressing of somebody else in order to find one's, a conviction of strength within oneself. It's absolutely not. What boldness is, is coming in contact and in realization of the fact that the strength lies within me and the thing that I'm looking to get to is, is in fact accessible if I will only reach out for it and not tell myself to keep my hands to myself. Now, Rav Nachman says, but how do you actualize the fullest inner strength to express boldness? So in classic, in classic Hasidic philosophy, Rav Nachman says that azus must come from happiness. Boldness must come from a state of happiness. Very, very fascinating. Tonight's subject is not the, the, the subject of joy, which is a whole section in this book, but the concept of happiness is, is that man comes to a sense of wholesomeness with himself, a sense of fullness. And in that sense of wholeness and fullness that he feels about his life, he can have happiness. When a person is in a state of happiness, then there's a healthy boldness that can come from it. So the, the major way that a person can come to a boldness that will not have the trapping in it of, of compromising one's dignity and integrity and another person's dignity and integrity is if the boldness emanates from a place of, of simcha, uh, a, a place of a certain amount of happiness with what one has. Now, obviously this opens up a major question. Well, I don't feel that I have a lot to be happy for and things like that. We're not going to get into that now, but I felt that it would be incomplete not to mention that the boldness has to come from a place of wholesomeness, not from a place of undressing other people. And finally, the Rav Nachman ends off the little section on boldness, a couple of pages here. Rav Nachman ends it off and he says that in life we find that there were certain people that, that to us it seems that they merited to have a very close relationship okay, with great people. And there were other people that just didn't have those kinds of relationships. And to us, it just seems like he was born under the right star and I wasn't born under the right star. Uh, the particular rabbi or sage was a little bit prejudiced or biased and he showed him favor that really was due equally to me as it was to, to the other person. Rav Nachman says, get off of it all. Right. He says, if it's a true teacher and one person is closer to the teacher and one is further away from the teacher... It was because one possessed boldness of holiness and the other one didn't. He says the extent that there is a true relationship between the teacher and the student, provided, of course, that the teacher is a legitimate teacher, has a lot to do with the exercise of, of, a, of a healthy boldness. 
And therefore, the responsibility is, is placed clearly in the lap of the person that has to pursue the resource. This is how Rav Nachman ends it, because Rav Nachman was very much involved with this particular theme, you know, the resource, the teacher. However, this is true in general, in terms of Rav Aaron Kotler's Zechreinah which comes completely out of Hasidic philosophy, he wasn't in Hasidic philosophy, he was a Lithuanian Jew. Rav Aaron Kotler said that anybody that ever became great in the annals of Jewish history was because he possessed this determination and this boldness to actualize the potential that was within him. The difference between the one that became great and the one that didn't become great, Ravaran says, is not because potentially one had it and one didn't. They both had it, but one had the boldness to assert himself to, re- to reach it, and the other one didn't have it. All right, I'll stop here, and I'll gladly take some questions on this. Just parenthetically, before we go any further, just so I shouldn't forget, next week, for those of you that get the book between today and next week, we will be covering the area of barriers. Right? It's a natural flow from what we're talking about today. There's a lot of interesting Jewish philosophy and chassidus in what our attitudes should be to all of the different barriers that present our, it themselves in our lives. So if you want to read up in preparation for it, that's the thing that we're going to be doing next week. Okay, questions. Those of you that would like to leave, be bold and leave. Yes. No problem. No problem. You've got to do it. The point that I was making is that the, the, the power, the strength, the forcefulness of a healthy boldness doesn't come from the absence of quality in another person. It comes from the conviction that the quality exists within me. That's the point that I'm making. But the fact that in life we have to identify things that are destructive or negative to me Okay, and stay away from them and things like that. that that's, there's, no, there's no question that has to be done. Okay. Uh, this is something that Reb Nachman talks about in a different section of the book, in the section that talks about the concepts of honor. Now, it's, a, it's seemingly a peculiar place to talk about the subject that you're talking about, but let me explain it a little bit. Reb Nachman explains, as many before him and after him ex, um, have also explained, that very often the power that man has to influence another person doesn't come because he makes sure to always maintain a lot of common denominators and similarities with other people. When we're talking about qualitatively trying to influence and take people with us where we're going, that's something that happens 
because when we truly internalize that quality, okay, what happens is that it shines off of us and it inspires those that are looking and that have at least their eyes open to seeing it. In other words, the idea that I consciously have to bring people with me is not the ultimate way that we influence people. The ultimate way that we influence people is that the quality becomes so much a part of what I am is that as almost like a model of beauty, I bring other people with me. So it's really an internal, an internal, an internalization of the value that becomes the greatest spokesman of bringing other people with. You follow what I'm saying? Okay. Now, part of your concern about bringing other people with you and being afraid that you're going to be on the mountaintop by yourself, okay, comes from a different place. Okay, or it can come from a different place. I, I can't say with a certainty that that's where it's coming from. But very often, okay, when a person moves and grows, okay, there is, there, it is very normal and natural for a person to feel a certain degree of anxiety and insecurity, if only because it's a totally new place that I'm in. And a human being looks for anchors. And one of the critical anchors that a person has in life is his surrounding, his environment, his friends, and things like that. Whenever a person endeavors to go out, so to speak, on a limb and explore new territory, there is a normal fear of the unknown, the unfamiliar. And therefore, part of my motivation to take other people with me isn't really coming from the fact that I'm so convinced that it's true that I have to tell it to the rest of the world. It could be a motivation, but some of it comes because I need to, to be able to take with me the people that I had before because I have a need to have my surrounding and the support system as I move into the new area. I have to point out that you're not going to be successful in influencing other people if the ultimate motivation is to satisfy your own, even if it's a legitimate psychological need. You're not going to influence other people if the, if the motivation is really to satisfy one's own need. Okay? You will be able to influence other people successfully if you're really, really concerned about their well-being. You follow what I'm saying? So while I'm saying that the feeling of not wanting to be alone in, in, in the newfound life Okay, is is a very very legitimate need. Okay, but you can't take that legitimate need and say, okay, so now I'm going to become an evangelist and prove it to everybody else, and I'll kill two birds with one stone, and I'll have my support system. Influencing others and raising others has to come out of a deep concern about their well-being, and loving them and wanting them to have the things that you have. Do you follow what I'm saying? Yes. Advice. In Hebrew, it's Likutai Eitzos, but in English, it's advice. This is the book. Yes. Absolutely. Yes. Absolutely. 
It's a very complicated piece of Gemara, but there is the concept of Zivug Rishon and Zivug Sheni, the one that is destined before birth, and the second one, which can either be higher than what was destined or lower than what was destined, depending upon what man does with his life. But there definitely is a concept. You have to learn the Gemara with the Rishonim, but there definitely is a concept of being able to reach higher or lower than what one's destiny, what destiny was. Yes? Okay. Okay. This is a subject that uh, uh, what you're asking is a very good question. It's a very legitimate question. And to explain it well requires a lot of time. Let me just say some general things. Okay, some general things. It won't be suffice to answer the question, but let me just say some general things. The history of Rav Nachman's life, I'm not so well read up on to say if what you're saying is true or not true. I don't know. So that don't, you know, you can't look at me as any kind of resource of history. I'm, I'm lousy in history. However, let's just talk about some of the concepts. Okay, if you read what Rav Nachman writes over here, okay, if you read what Rav Nachman writes over here, Rav Nachman is really saying something which is really unbelievable. Rav Nachman is saying that that the soul yearns to share its perceptions with the body. Which ultimately means that the body is not is not rejected in Judaism. If the soul says, I have so many perceptions and I would love to share them with you, but you are you're so bold in your independent existence that I can't come near you, right? What is Rav Nachman teaching us? Rav Nachman is teaching us that essentially there is a tremendous yearning within the soul for a unity with the body. Now, we once gave a class, okay, at the, I think it was the very last class before Yom Kippur on Thursday night here, where we spoke about the concept that when a person returns from sin, he doesn't only have to return to God, but he has to return to a higher appreciation of his body. That his body is to be respected because it was destined to be the vehicle and vessel and the partner for all of the spiritual accomplishments that the soul would, uh, would, would succeed at in this world. A person that has a low image of his body will use his body to sin with. It is only a person that has a high appreciation of his body that won't allow himself to use his body to sin with it. So when we talk about returning to God, we have to also talk about returning to a higher appreciation of body. That's classic Jewish philosophy. Right? And let nobody tell you differently. Now, not that notwithstanding, okay, there is another concept in Judaism that says that the body has a tremendous tendency of always looking for independence always looking to be independent, always looking to hop, 
to be able to grab, okay, and to take something in without any kind of partnership with a, a spiritual a spiritual goal. Alright? Now, single individuals, single individuals were able in their lifetimes to be extremely critical and scrutinizing about the slightest kind of grabbing that the body would like to do as independent connection to the physical world without partnership. You know, sometimes people are partners and they write a contract of partnership that virtually in everything they are partners. And partners cheat on each other. What do they do? No, there's this kind of business deal that came up and you rationalize to yourself that it really has nothing to do with the partnership and therefore all of the profits that come from it I'm going to pocket myself and they won't go 50-50. There's a tendency that even if there's a contract of partnership you try to steal on the side. You try to ganif on the side. The body has a tendency to ganva on the side. Okay. Now, for most people... Okay, to, 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 to pay attention to the little grabbing that the body does on the side for itself is not the business of our lives. And if we get into that, we're distracting our energies from where they're really supposed to be. However, for singular individuals, they paid attention to the cheating on the side as well. And that's what this is part of a concept of. Okay? Does, am I legitimizing making oneself sick? No. Okay, I don't know the, the fact uh, of it to, to begin with. Anyway, you know, if it's true, if it's not true. There is, no, there is no way of legitimizing making oneself sick because a sick body cannot serve the Lord. All right? There's no way. However, the concept of, of more deprivation of the body it was in the sense of feeling that the body is cheating, that it's trying to hop some stuff outside of the partnership. Okay, one last question. Yeah. Abraham's choice? Yeah, his choice whether we should suffer in this world. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. But if, 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 if he hadn't made the choice he made, and if we only suffer in the world to come, then none of this integration or having a Shekinah in this world could happen. You know, if there's no suffering in this world, we don't do the work and the fixing. Yes, then it will, would all happen afterwards. Not necessarily, because God wasn't saying that there wouldn't be anybody that would, wouldn't be doing the work. The ones that would fall out of their responsibility, where would their correction be? Okay? I don't think we're talking on, on a total universal level. Okay, let's, 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 uh, let's break over here. And um, those of you that can get the book, okay, you should really get the book.